Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Contagious Smile. We have a great show planned for you today. I have, oh, this is going to be hard. This is going to be a challenge. I have the distinct honor, I hope you record this, you can hear this later on, of having Judge Christopher Callahan with us. This is this is hard for me, Chris, because I've known Chris since 1989, and we have a very different history. We, um, oh, he was my boss at like, I think it was my first job. And then he became like my big brother, completely platonic, our entire decades of life. And he has an amazing career, which he's loving that I'm saying this. He was a law enforcement officer and a detective. And then he decided that he wanted to go to the other side of the law. So he went to law school and became a lawyer. And now he's a judge. So with that little introduction, hi, judge. Just call me Chris. Hi, Victoria. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Never, ever would I have guessed that this would have happened here. Never. Um, we are going to discuss today domestic violence. So do you want to give a more detailed information about your background a little bit? before we dive in? Sure, I'd love to. I'd love to. Um, when I started law enforcement fairly early, before the age of 21, and you knew me then, I uh, started at the Fulton County Sheriff's Department, actually working for your ah. father. <laughs> anyway, uh. I digress. <laughs> and uh, worked, to, worked with, um, worked in the jail, uh, served warrants, things like that. It's funny back then you, you, you could be a police officer for an entire year before you had to go to the Academy. Nowadays you have to go to the Academy and pass before you can become a police officer, but right. You had to serve a year in the jail. Uh, so worked in the jail, uh, then, uh, got a, a different policing job with a different agency and ended up, um, in Atlanta with the Fulton County police department where I would answer calls for service. And there there's two, the two most dangerous calls for a police officer to answer one is not a call at all it's a traffic stop traffic stops you never know who you're pulling over or what they've just been going through or who they are you, you just don't know and the second is a domestic violence call uh, when you're dealing with somebody who has the mindset that it's okay to hurt other people that that human life is not valuable that uh you just never know what you're getting into and, and people's emotions are high because it's their spouse or it's their loved one. It's their boyfriend. It's their girlfriend. And so those are very dangerous call, but I have been on thousands of domestic violence calls. What used to frustrate me as an officer is I would uh, go to the call. I would have one party who was a primary aggressor, one party and both parties may have, both people may be injured. You may have injuries on both sides, but it's really, very important for the officer to determine who was the primary aggressor. Just as an example, a woman may have skin under her fingernails um, and the man may have scratches, you know, and, and did she attack him? Well, if she has skin under her nails and he has scratches, that's probably a defensive wound. So you have to think about things like that. Had numerous, numerous classes on domestic violence, but we'll get more into that later. Um, uh, so after being a police officer, I went to law school 
and became an attorney. And I both prosecuted and defended domestic violence cases, both prosecuted people who were accused of domestic violence and defended people who were accused of domestic violence. Uh, and then as a judge, I see domestic violence cases come across my bench every time I have a docket. So uh, it's something that I've seen from every angle. Now, you were also a detective. What department what? were you a detective for? Fulton County Police Department. And, in what, and what did you specialize with? When I first started out, I did um, general crimes. Uh, when you first become a detective, you kind of have to work your way up, I guess. So we handled misdemeanor, bicycle thefts. Uh, but a lot of that also dealt with harassing phone calls, harassing communications. Then I went to the robbery or burglary division. I worked burglaries for couple of years, then went to robbery homicide. I was a homicide detective. And the last, about the last year I was there, I did crimes against women and children. That's got to be really tough. Yeah, it's tough on the bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as you know, that domestic violence is on a rise, especially here in the United States, uh, that it's literally every three seconds that somebody is injured, male or female, but it's mostly females. What can we be doing as a society to help get domestic violence to end? It's not going to happen overnight. We know this, but we've got to start somewhere. Well, if you're looking at the root cause, and I, I think we're looking at the root cause of sin, um, if we really want to stop domestic violence, then we have to we have to have policies where we encourage um, we encourage a strong family unit. We encourage, uh, you know, families are in church, families respect one another. What, what I found, and, and really, I didn't really discover this until I became a judge, but when people are willing to hurt other people, whether it's domestic violence related or not, it's because they don't value other people. They don't realize how valuable people are. They don't value themselves. Right. So until they realize that they're valuable, until a person realizes that, one, they were made by a holy God who loves them and God thought enough to make them. And then he, he loved them enough to die for them until they begin to understand how valuable they are. They don't appreciate themselves. They don't think they're valuable and therefore they don't value other human life. Um, but I think a, a, a stronger uh, family unit, unit, a, 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 a family uh, that goes to church who prays together. Now, now listen, being a Christian is no immunity to sin. We all That's sin, but I think, uh, I think that, that that is one thing. Another, another aspect in, in our nation today we face is we have a crisis, I think, and how we deal with mental health. We do not deal with mental health properly. Um, we had this pandemic that really saw a rise in, mental health issues, and that saw a rise in domestic violence issues as well. Um, so I, Christ is the answer, I think, but um, it's not necessarily the laws um, that, that are going to be the answer. How do you feel about the laws that are in place right now or the lack thereof for domestic violence? I think the laws are in place and, and we have this we have this strange balance. It's not really strange, but we have this balance between people's constitutional rights and which always have to be there and their right to be innocent to a proven guilty, their right to a fair and fair process and a, and a speedy trial and, and all of the rights that they have. Um, 
But here's here's where the rub comes in. So an officer responds to a domestic violence call and he has to make a determination. He has to make a judgment call. One, has a crime been committed? Two, if he believes a domestic violence crime has been committed, uh, a lot of his discretion goes away. He must, he or she must then determine the primary aggressor and make an arrest uh, of the primary aggressor if it is domestic violence. However, once that person is arrested, now it's up to the prosecutor to prove that case. That's very difficult in domestic violence cases because the, the spouse who is abused feels like they love the person who abused them. They don't see a way out. A lot of times uh, they may have battered wife syndrome um, and they're reluctant to come to court. One, they might be in fear. They might be in fear that right. if they come testify, they're going to get beat up again. Right. Two, they just feel like nobody else is going to love them. So uh, they don't want this person to be gone from their life. Sometimes it, it might be somebody who doesn't work, say a housewife, and, and the husband's the only one who works. Well, if he goes to jail and loses his job, then the security and safety of the family is in jeopardy. So it's very hard to get the victims of domestic violence to actually come to court. And if they do come to court to testify, and if they're married, they have what's called spousal immunity. They can get on the stand and say, I choose not to testify against my spouse. You can't even force them to testify. Without that, it's very hard to prosecute a case. Now, that being said, the way the law works, the victim is, when they come to court, they're a witness to the crime. So the prosecution can proceed and attempt to prosecute the case without the witness, um, but it's very difficult to do so. So I would say probably less than 5% of the people arrested for domestic violence ever get convicted, which is not good because about 75% of the people who are arrested for domestic violence actually have committed domestic violence. Right. What about the women who get incarcerated for self-defense against their attacker? That's a training issue with the officer. The officer is supposed to be able to determine who the primary aggressor is. We talked about this a little bit with the right. the scratch marks on say, you know, if 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 it's a if it's a woman who's been uh, say choked by her husband and he choked her but didn't leave a mark and she's trying to get him off, so she scratches his face. Now he's got a mark, she doesn't, and she goes to jail. So officers need to have enough training to learn to identify the primary aggressor and learn what is a defensive wound and what is a, an aggressive uh, wound by somebody who is trying to perpetrate domestic violence. Right. So and it's not just physical. I mean, it, domestic violence can be emotional. Yes. It can be, um, you know, just talking about talking to your spouse in such a way that, that he or she is, feels worthless or you're, you're attempting to make them feel worthless. It can be, intimidation or fear or financial threats. I mean, yeah. So uh, it, it goes beyond just the physical, although the law is really designed to protect people from physical harm. What do you say to someone who is kind of on the fence about getting a TPO because they feel like it's just a piece of paper that's really not going to do anything except anger that abuser or attacker? TPOs are actually very effective. Um and, and the reason being is if, if somebody gets a, uh, a temporary protective order mm -hmm. is, what, is where TPO is against another person who harms them, once that protective order has been served on the abuser, if the abuser then attempts to contact the, the victim again, 
that abuser is going to jail. And you know what? They're not getting out of jail for a long time. They're not going to have a bond. They're going to sit there till their trial occurs, which could be a year, could be a year and a half, two years. So it, it really gives that person time to move on if that person does that. Um, I find that most of the time, the, the domestic violence abusers actually do follow the TPOs. I would say more than they don't, probably more than 50% of the time they do not. Once they, that TPO is served, they don't want to go sit in jail for the next year. So that's enough a lot of times to either help them move on or to leave that person alone. They're actually very effective. What do you think about giving a verbal um, warning of criminal trespass until they can go get their TPO? Could a woman or male who is subject to abuse give that to their attacker until they can go get the TPO in the meantime? I think every situation is different. Typically, uh, or most of the time, not well, not most, but a lot of the time, if it's domestic violence, then they live in the same home. What uh, if it's uh, someone that's not living there? It's a boyfriend, yeah, but they're not domiciled together. Right. If they don't domicile together, but they do have a dating relationship, then that person can give them a verbal criminal trespass warning, but it's not going to be as effective as if they have a piece of paper, if they have an order from a judge or. Um, no, I'm saying if they got that in the interim until they could get to court and get the yeah, TPO. I mean, I mean they, they, they can do that. It's, it's, I just don't think it's super effective. So walk me through from a victim's point of view, what they should do to make themselves feel better as they listen to this. I, I have so many women and men, but mostly women that will be so excited to have you here and to have you give this point of view from an officer to a detective, to a judge of what they can do because they feel like they're at a loss. They're in a corner. They've got nowhere to go and no one believes in them. They've been brought down to their lowest and they have no support. And we try to bring them back and show them that they have their inner light and that they are worth fighting for and that they can do this. We also help with the safety planning and things of that nature and helping them get back on to their feet again. But what can they do from moment one onward from your point of view in order to help secure their safety and maybe the safety of their children? The first thing they need to do is if you're in an abusive relationship, get out, take your kids, get out, go to your, go, they, go to your mom's house, go to a, a women's shelter, go anywhere to be safe. You're not safe if you're in, a, in an abusive relationship. Um, but the key is, we go back to human value. The key is realizing that you as a person, you the victim, are valuable, that you have great value. You, you have uh, great worth. And there are so many people out there who will treat you right. You don't have to be with this person. Somebody out there will love you for who you are, will treat you right. And you will be able to find somebody else. One of the tactics that abusers use is they'll tell their spouse, well, nobody else will have you. You're terrible. They put them down so much. The person starts to believe it. Don't believe the lie because it's just that it's a lie. Secondly, you've got to follow through with prosecution. They may threaten you. They may tell you things. They may tell you you're not lovable. You are lovable. Um, the justice system uh, does work. And if you testify against them, they're, they're going to be in trouble. And they may go to jail. Um, even for a misdemeanor, they could go to jail for up to one year. So, uh, and, and then even if not, 
they're going to be on some type of probation that says they can't be around you at all. So if they even, at that point, if they even try to call you or talk to you or send you smoke signals, guess what? They're going to jail and they're not getting out. Um, judges take this very seriously. Judges are very frustrated that victims do not come and testify against their accusers and do not follow through. Uh, just know that you're loved. You, there's a holy God who loves you. There are people out there who will love you other than your abuser. And you don't have to be in that relationship. Now, that's much easier said than done. But the key to get out is to follow through, to get away and then follow through with the prosecution. What about if you get one of these officers who just say, hey, you know what? Take a walk for the night. They come back. We we had an amazing gentleman on who was chief of police um, up north. And he said that one of the calls that haunt him to this day was, um, he had officers that called him and said that he needed to come over to this specific apartment in the middle of the night. He goes over there in the middle of the night. And it's a very small, small town. And it is just burnt down to the to the ground. And he says, what, what is this? What's going on? And he said, well, we responded earlier in the evening and it was a domestic violence thing. We just told him to cool off. He came back and literally burned her alive and they did the cops didn't do anything. And he said to this day it haunts him because what do you do when the officers just say, you know what, it's almost near the end of my shift. There's too much paperwork with this, you know, blah, blah, blah. What did you do to make him mad? And the cops walk away. And then the victim feels like 10 times worse because not only did you just really piss off your aggressor, but you don't even have the support of local law enforcement. That shouldn't happen, first of all. The most of the states now have laws where the officer if he if he has probable cause to believe that a domestic violence act has occurred, that he must make an arrest of the primary aggressor. Um, so uh, that just shouldn't have happened. Period. It just shouldn't have happened. The officers should be making arrests and should not just be walking away saying, "Well, y'all, y'all, calm down and don't make us come back" or whatever they might say. Right. If there's been an act of domestic violence. Now, I mean, there's no. There's no foolproof plan to stop sin. I mean, right. no, you know, absolutely, you're it, right. It, it's going to happen, but but you know, the majority of the time, if if the uh, if the victim can get away and stay away and walk away, their life will be they'll they'll feel a freedom that they haven't felt in a long time. Yes. I often talk when I do different um, speaking engagements about how important it is for the kids to not witness this and to get away from the children watching it and to get out so that your children who mimic the behavior of the parents, that's who you're supposed to learn how to live your life as watches. And the little boy is going to learn it's okay to hit mom or it's the daughter who sees it's okay to hit dad because my mom does. And that's what I know. And we need to stop the cycle before it continues on to the next generation. How can a parent who is going through abuse in the interim, whether they're deciding I'm not worth it, I just need to stay, I'm never going to get any better. We try to really impact the, the victim and say, you are worth it. And even if this point in time, you don't feel like you are, your kids are worth it. So how can we talk to them about them realizing that they need to do this, even if it's not right now for themselves, that they do it for the kids? Well, I think you said it, that that the kids do not need to see this behavior. It is very harmful to them emotionally. A lot of times the kids also are abused physically. And it, just like you said, if you're not going to do it for yourself, do it for your kids. 
Um, I, you know, what I, when I was a detective of crimes against women and children, what I would see very often is the, the aggressor might be abusing the children. And for instance, it, you know, if, if there's a, a husband who is abusing, uh, gets married to a, to a woman who has kids already, and then he starts abusing her kids, instead of sticking up for her own kids, she would stick up for her abuser and, and the person abusing their children. Right. It's a, it, it really goes back to a mental state. And, and it's not that these people are mentally ill, but they're going through some, something circumstantially that in their mind, they don't know how to get out of. And a lot of it just has to do with safety and security. They want to feel secure, to have that person to, to, you know, maybe they're the breadwinner or whatever, but uh, you've always got to look out for the safety and security of your children. Um, it, it even got, I even see, see cases where the woman is abused, but because she, or maybe the children are abused and the wife knows it, but she covers for the husband. And at that point she becomes an accomplice. And right. I've seen mothers face criminal liability for not protecting their children. It's so, it's so scary to think that people actually will do that. And I tell people all the time that the aggressors, the abusers, they go through cycles. You know, they keep thinking, the the victims keep thinking they're going to change and this, this is not who they are and this isn't who they fell in love with. But they go through cycles. They go through that courtship cycle and then they go through this cycle and then it's the abuse cycle. And then it's, I'm so sorry, why did you make me do this to you cycle? And it really really gets into the victim's minds and it makes them really feel as if they can't get out because they don't deserve any better. And every time they try to get help, it's why'd you do it? Why'd you make it mad? Why didn't you just do what he needed? You know, and, and it really placates on them because they feel like I can't do anything right. Nothing. And then they just kind of feel like, and now my kids are watching it and the kids are starting to act out and there's nothing positive for them to hang on to. So what else can you say to these individuals? Because they need to realize, they keep saying, I wish that I had another way of getting into somebody and saying, hey, you know, they're not going to change. They're not going to change. Because so many people swear up and down, he had a bad day and he came home and he just absolutely by accident took it out on me. This isn't the man I fell in love with. This isn't the man I married. He's going to go back to the old him. How can you really just help me convey that, that that doesn't happen? Well, any man or woman who is willing to raise their hand and strike the person they say they love is not somebody you want to be with, period. That's the end of it. If it happens one time, period, that's the end of it. Nobody who loves you will strike, will raise their hand and strike you. Get away, prosecute. If I can convince one person who's a victim to show up to court and prosecute the case and get the judge to issue that protective order and follow through. You know, it's funny, the people who are, I find the people who are abusers are cowards most of the time. They are cowards. They pick on people who are weaker than them. And as soon as you stand up to them, they back off. The problem is nobody stands up to them, but as soon as you stand up to them, they back off because they are cowards. So muster up the strength somehow, some way to show up to court, to prosecute that person and to let them and other abusers know you can't do this to people. It's not right. And I won't allow you to do it anymore. 
Now, aren't there measures that they can take also to give them a sense of safety when they go to court? Like they can request to have an officer in the court with them, or maybe a domestic violence advocate can go with them just to kind of give them a more safe peace of mind because they're walking into this facility where they know his day in court is here kind of thing. I don't know how all courts are. In my court, the victims of domestic violence are separated in a totally separate room from the court. Uh, Every victim of domestic violence has a domestic violence coordinator that will sit with them and talk with them. Um, they, there are officers who are, who watch over them. So the only time you have to be anywhere near them is during the actual trial. If there's a trial, um, sometimes the people, once they see their spouse showing up, they don't want a trial. They'll just plead guilty so that their bad acts don't have to be heard by the judge. (laughs) So, um, most people, once their spouse shows up and says, I'm going to testify against this person and, and, you know, and you don't have to tell your abuser that yourself, you're in a different room, typically, or on a whole other side of the courtroom, you're talking with a, a victim's rights advocate, and the prosecutor and the prosecutor will tell the judge for you, you don't have to. Um, and so it's, it's made easy for you. But uh, if there's a trial, you're going to have to stand up and say what happened and just don't look at the person be honest look at the judge, tell the judge what you want the judge to know or the jury. And, uh, and you're not going to be standing right next to that person. They're going to be in a, you know, far enough away from you where you'll be safe. There'll be officers between you. There'll be lawyers standing between you. Um, sometimes they're lawyers who used to be police officers like me. Um, but, uh, and, and the judge is going to have complete control of the courtroom. So, um, there are definitely safety measures in place. And at least there are in my courtroom, I can't imagine a courtroom that would not have safety measures in place. Now, I've been asked by so many people this question, and I'm glad I get to ask you. What about when the person gets out? God bless them. They get out, they file for divorce, and then they go through and realize that my partner, even though I don't really call it a partner, is going to have my kids for joint custody. And he's hit my kids or I'm afraid of what he's going to do to my kids. What can they do in that situation when it comes to the litigation part of it to try to secure the safety of their children? Well, that, that's really a different court than the criminal court. Um, that's a, a domestic relations court. And in domestic relations court, the 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 evidence of, of a domestic violence conviction will come into place. And so judges will, domestic or domestic relations judges will look at that and either order supervised visitation or order that parent to undergo classes to for anger management or how to be a better parent or how to deal with whatever they're going through better. I mean, somebody who is going to physically abuse someone else, they have mental issues going on in their head too uh, that need to be addressed. I mean, we want them to get better, but until they do, uh, we, you know, we, we don't want them to continue to be abusers, even though most likely they will be. Um, so, you know, I think if you want to protect your children from their abuse, then prosecute the criminal case. Once, the crim- once they've been convicted of domestic violence or an act of domestic violence against their children or you, it's a lot less likely that they're going to have any kind of primary custody, that they're going to have physical custody without some type of uh, supervision. So, uh, but if you just let them get away with it, then guess what? They're going to have free access to the kids. And there's not much you can do about it because you chose not to prosecute it. 
Right. Well, I'm helping a lady now who, God bless her, survivor. She's amazing. And she prosecuted and he was given like a slap on the wrist. And he literally just got literal probation, which I think is ridiculous because, well, I have a very strong stance on this. And she ended up going through the divorce proceedings and the judge said, well, he hit you. He hasn't hit his kids yet. So they have joint custody. And she is very scared because he was very verbally abusive to the kids. The kids testified that he was really mean to the mom. He was really mean to them and that she doesn't want to do the switch with them on the week, every other weekend. So the judge said, okay, well, he hurt you. He didn't hurt the kids, but we'll let you pick somebody else to do the switch for custody weekends. And the judge let the dad if you will get the kids every other weekend yeah but she prosecuted and she won i mean he got probation but the judge is like it does it does happen i mean that that we we don't have a perfect system so what do we do about that at that point i don't have wait for a child to get hurt (laughs) i i I don't have an answer for you jackie i mean we had we 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 don't we don't reelect that judge (laughs) we don't reelect the judge (laughs) I mean, we, we you know we live we live in a representative republic. Judges are elected as well. We don't reelect that judge. So. so, give me some insight on how just people in general could do. Like, let me go back. So, the kids that are are violent these days. What do you think is the cause for it? Um, the kids I see who are violent uh, typically don't have a father in the home. Typically, they uh, don't have an education. They've either quit high school, you know, or they've quit school or um, a lot of them are illiterate. I find that there's a great correlation between literacy and criminal activity. There's a huge correlation between having a father in the home and criminal activity. So I I think just supporting the family unit um, and... uh, is really one of the biggest things. Do you think video games have anything to do with the violence in the teenage years this this time? I think both video games and social media uh, contribute the even even music. Um, the some of the music that my kids as they were growing up, I would I would l- hear them listening to, and I would you know counsel them against promoted violence. It it, it promoted a. A lot of the music promotes a mindset uh, that that women are not valuable, that that, that men should just treat women like objects, um, and we we can't live like that. Uh, we can't think like that. Um, or they promote drug use. So you know, garbage in, garbage out. Whether it's social media, whether it's music, whether it's video games. I mean, the video games today are just horrific. So, so graphically violent. It's 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 like you're seeing acts of war like a soldier would go through, except, you know, soldiers who have PTSD because they actually saw it. And now you're, you're watching it constantly. You know, it's amazing to me when you can turn on the television and you can watch a woman be forcibly raped on network television. And that's not offensive, but uh, the manger scene is offensive. That's exactly. a problem. That is that's, a problem. That's I, a problem. I have a huge problem with that. And it's like, you know, when we were young, not showing our age, well, you're older than me. But we had Donkey Kong and we had Miss Pac-Man and Frogger and those were our video games. And, you know, and now like 
it's literally like they go into these worlds where they spend 20 hours a day watching and doing virtual games and violence and killing. Well, I didn't, I just blew something up. I didn't kill anybody, you know, and that's the mentality that they have. And then it's almost as if when you come out of it, that that's not really their world. That's their virtual world because their real world is that game and the people online. And, you know, when I'm like, let's go outside and let's get some fresh air and things like that. And a lot of the kids will say, I just saw my friend. I saw him on FaceTime or I just play video games with them. Why do I want to go to their house? And that is just, I can't fathom that. I can't grasp it. Like my daughter does not do video games. She doesn't get that time. She she doesn't understand the concept of this stuff because I think it's all toxic. Well, I, what happened to the days when, when like my mom, my mom and I would wake up on Saturday morning, we would clean the house together. And then as soon as we were done, I was told to go outside and play. And then she locked the door behind me. <laughs> well, so I, can, I don't blame I her for that. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't allowed to come back in until dinner time. So, <laughs> you know, we, we dug holes and played army that way. And we, um, you know, we built race cars out of boxes and pretended that a cardboard box was a spaceship and, uh, and played with Tonka trucks and played touch football or tackle football in the neighborhood with the other kids and jumped in the creek. And, you know, our version of getting in trouble was coming home with your shoes all wet and muddy. Right. Uh, or, or one time we, we filled up the big giant trash can with water and decided it was hot. And so we'd go swimming in the trash can and, <laughs> you know, you know that, that that's the kind of stuff we would get in trouble for. But uh, with technology today, I mean, you have you have kindergartners going to school with a cell phone. And you have then, a kindergartner who shot their teacher. Yeah, and and then you have yeah, then you have uh, you know they have act. Not only do they have access to all of this horrible stuff, but but all of the online predators now have access to them. Yes, um, no matter what, like there's this horrible site, Creepy Pasta, and I talk about it all the time. I don't want to promote it because I think it's horrific, and it it's supposed to be like under the age of thirteen you know, filter. And it has all this thing. And the leader of this has actually been known to go on and tell people to, you know, to perform criminal activity. And they do because they're following this thing, individual leader, whatever you want to call them, but they're doing it, but it filters under 13 and under so that I don't know how they're sliding through it when it's the criminal activity and this guy is coming in and, you know, it's graphic and it's disgusting. How is it getting past the filters? I mean, parental filters really are useless at this point. Well, the, the parental filter needs to be the parent. So absolutely. Uh, no, it but, does. But kids are allowed to bring cell phones to school. They are. You know, uh, in school, we don't we don't write anymore. They don't teach writing. They don't teach cursive. They don't teach spelling. So what do they you don't do? Teach math. <laughs> well, that's true, too. What do you do when you have to sign a document? How do you you know, like my child can tell you what a Dewey Decimal System is, but her friends are like, what? What is that? What is what is a Dewey Decimal System? That they don't know what it is. I mean, everything is done electronically. And then instead of knowing how to spell a word, it's look it up on words, you know, let them check it out on word search, let word find it and Grammarly will correct it. That's not right. That's, that's not educating your kids. I mean, they're not even putting any safety into play when I, on the teen talk podcast that we have, I asked a bunch of kids prior to school starting, what is your biggest fear? And their biggest fear was getting shot at school. That's not something you and I ever had to worry about. I think our biggest worry was dodgeball or who's going to get whatever on the playground first or, you know, whatever the case may be. But now, I mean, 
seriously, this is horrific. I can't understand how there are shootings like every single day and we can't well, Victoria, get it under control. Yeah, Victoria, we, we're not going to be able to change the fact that our world is a world of technology now. We're, we're going to have parents, as parents, we have to be more diligent than our parents were, just like our parents had to be more diligent than their parents were. Um, you know, my mom could send me outside to, for the day and not have to worry about it. I can't, I can't just leave my kids unattended into their own device. As parents, we have to limit the amount of screen time that our kids have. My kids knew that at 8 p.m., all, all electronic devices were turned in uh, to me. And oh, you had them turn them over to you. Oh, yes. Yeah, they had to they had to turn all electronic devices. I mean, they're grown now, but before that, they would turn their electronic devices over to me by 8 p.m. They knew their homework had to be done by then and uh, and they just had to be responsible to do that. And, and then also we would turn the Internet off completely um, just in case they had, you know, one time I think they snuck another device uh, that their friend had given them. And then, but I'd shut the internet off and they couldn't get online. So, <laughs> I mean, we just have to be that diligent and we have to communicate with our kids and, and, it, and it's tough, but that's the world we live in. We're not going to be able to change that. So we have to be more diligent and have rules in place. We don't have to be our kids' best friend. Right. We have to love them and protect them and do what's right for them. How old were your kids when you gave them phones? Um... It was it was different for each one because the te the times of technology changed. So my oldest two did not get phones until they started driving. That makes sense. Yeah. And but my youngest had a phone in elementary school and probably about fifth grade. He probably got his first phone. So. And were they like, this isn't the brand new iPhone. This is whatever. I mean, they want you like go get a job and pay for it. It's a little pricey. Right. Well, that's, that's a totally different issue, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the world we live in. We have to protect our kids, but part, but, you know, back to what we were talking about to begin with protecting our kids means keeping them out of an abusive relationship, uh, means keeping them away from our abusive relationships. If you're in an abusive relationship, then your child is also being abused, whether they're being directly abused or they just see the effects of it on you. And what other steps can a mom or dad take to secure the safety of their child, say, like at school while this is all going on? Because if the parent gets a TPO and the TPO doesn't cover the child, is there anything they can do in regards to the school to protect the child at this point? I think just to make sure that the school has all of the paperwork for any court hearings, um, it doesn't hurt to go talk to the SRO, the school resource officer, and just let them know what's going on. You can set up a meeting with them or set up a meeting with the principal just to let them know what's going on. Uh, you know, the schools don't want something happening on their watch. So if you take the time to bring the paperwork up there, meet with the school resource officer, meet with the principal, meet with your child's teacher, um, you're going to have three more sets of really good eyes on them, taking care of them. If you don't do that, they're not going to know what's going on and, you, and they can't help your child. So what can we do to help the children that are already acting out because of the abuse they're witnessing and having to endure at home? And they go to school and they act out and they become the bullies because they want attention. They don't care if it's negative or positive. They just need to feel like somebody's seeing or hearing them because they're being excluded. Just the same things that we've talked about so far. And there, there's no, there's no new answer. Um, I mean, those, those kids, 
need help. They need counseling. They need parents. They need teachers. They need people who care. You know, I mean, I can't tell you how many police officers I've known who didn't just answer calls, but they became servants of the community. They would show up at kids' basketball games just to be seen and talk to the kids and just be a positive influence in their life or a positive role model. Or That doesn't uh, happen anymore. It does happen. Not it, really. It really does. I this, this is not the time you would want to be a cop again. Would you want yeah. to be a, a cop again in this time? No, I would not. No, it's not even safe anymore. People don't even respect. And there's I respect, bad apples. I, I, I respect police officers. I love police officers. I admire what they do. Your job, you're, if you're a police officer, your job is a hundred times tougher than it was when I was a police officer. All I Hands had to down. worry about was getting shot. Uh, you know, you, you have to worry about getting ambushed. Although, although in my day we had people ambushed as well. I, I responded to an officer who was ambushed, uh, a call where an officer was ambushed and killed. And I was the first officer on the scene while I was a police officer. So is this the Doraville officer? No, this was a, a Fulton County police officer named Aaron Blunt. Um, really, really good guy. And, uh, but he was, he was ambushed in the neighborhood he grew up in. Oh, wow. He was, he was a basketball coach of, of little league. I mean, he, you know, he had a two-year-old, he, he did everything right. And, but, but somebody just wanted to kill a cop. So they got his attention, ambushed him and killed him. So. That's horrible. That's absolutely horrible. If you could leave everyone with one little piece of advice, what would you give them? prosecute your case and get the heck away from your abuser. I thank you very much for spending your morning with us and helping us with some much needed information and resources. All right. Thank you, Victoria. You have a good day. Thank you. Thank you guys.